Over to you, Lisa. Brilliant. Okay. Um, first to say, I'm really happy to be here. It's great to see all of you. Um, and it's a little bit difficult, I was saying, to follow such an eloquent presentation. It makes you start to sort of question <laughs> what you were going to say. Um, but there are some interesting sort of continuities between the first presentation and, and some of the, the ideas and themes that I'm going to be sort of um, raising in this presentation. And also I was quite interested um, that Mark was talking about Patrick Shaw-Stewart because I wrote my thesis here at the university on um, Rupert Brooke um, and Patrick Shaw-Stewart was, of course, sort of present at Brooke's death, this sort of iconic moment of the First World War. And I'll talk a little bit about Brooke. I'm trying not to let Brooke sort of dominate the presentation, which is what I tend to kind of want to do. Um, This is, of course, the, the warning on the label is that it will be a bit of a sort of reduction and a bit of a gloss of the poetry um, all the poetry, so much poetry published in the, in, in the early years of the war. Um, but hopefully we can um, still sort of have, have an interesting discussion about it. Um, I thought I'd start, uh, the other day I did a, a Google search for Rupert Brooke, and I thought it was interesting that when I did this, people, this is what sort of came up, people also searched for Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, and Robert Graves. Interestingly, that Robert Graves is the only person who's not sort of in uniform or in the sort of First World War um, guys in, in this little, little sort of series of, of images, Isaac Rosenberg and Emma London. Um, of course, this is in 2014, so it's always interesting, and it's particularly interesting now with all of the, the talk about commemoration, to think of how we sort of construct the, um, the canon of, of, of First World War poetry. And I suspect a lot of the poets that were sort of reading in the early years, or were read in the early years of the war, probably don't make it into, or won't make it into discussions about what the sort of literary canon is now. And when I'm talking to students, I always try to, to, and also to myself, I'm constantly sort of repeating this, the idea of, of, of what's happening in the public and then in the private spheres. What are people, or what were people at the time thinking about? What are we thinking about when we're reading poetry, when we're buying poetry? Because, of course, there's a sort of commercial element to this as well. Um, but what, how does this also fit up with what's happening in the sort of political spheres, with how war is discussed, um, with what's going on it's, it sort of concurrently, and how we're sort of transposing the past onto the present and, and vice versa. What our own personal experience of war has been or is and what the experience of readers who were sort of living through the First World War period, um, what was their experience of the war? What is our kind of um, opinion about sort of sentiment and sentimentality? How do, how do we respond to that? Because I think that's very interesting. The early war years, some of the poetry that I sort of discuss with students, they think of it as being extremely sentimental and a bit silly, if, if for lack of a better word. But... There is, um, I always try to remind them that, you know, sentiment is not something that's consistent. Different sort of poems, different poets appeal appeal to people at different moments in their lives. And it's very important to remember that that happened, that the people who were living through the First World War were actual human beings whose tastes were changing and who were having particular experiences and maybe were sort of attracted to a particular um, poet at one point and then moved away and then came back. And also, how do we sort of view this, this big sort of idea of patriotism? And what is our reaction to that? And, of course, it's, it, it's always, well, nearly impossible to sort of get into the mindset of 1914, 1915. But by reading some of these potentially lesser-known sources, there is, you know, the opportunity to kind of think what is sort of math culture, what is being produced in the popular press, what are people buying, what are people thinking about, um, poet soldiers as well as, as well as people who are on the home front. So that's where I thought I'd start with. So just thinking back to popular poets during Poet Soldiers during the First World War, and I'm starting with Poet Soldiers, but I won't only speak about Poet Soldiers. Um, I thought it's kind of like playing Guess Who. You you probably recognise most of the faces up there. Um, Of course, Rupert Brooke, uh, 
we have uh, friend, I don't know if you recognize Francis uh, Ledwich in the, in the center or Tom Kettle. The gentleman on the right is Alan Seeger, who is a very popular American poet of the First World War, who is serving with the French Foreign Legion. Does anyone recognize this gentleman? Charles Piggy, who dies very, very early in, in the war, is a French soldier. And interestingly, Brooke sort of has this moment where he, say, he reads about the death of Piggy and he says, I'm sort of jealous of his good name. All of these, these French poets are dying sort of early in the war and having these kind of glorious, um, glorious deaths, at least in, 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 to some extent. It's a slightly, I think, ironic way to, way to talk about it as well. Does anyone recognize this gentleman here? Philip Sidney. Yes, yeah. And of course, Lord Byron. Yeah. I mean, of course, this is, again, this is just a selection. And I'm kind of thinking about this as a way to get into talking a little bit about Brooke. But there is this sense that there's this great heritage. Right? It was mentioned before, and I think it was an excellent question about the sort of classical education. Um, and the fact that there was this sense of a sort of national English poetry, British, of course, is something interesting to consider. But also, I wanted to put Charles Peggy up there as well, because it, there's a sense also that in 1914, 1915, Europe is actually, or has been, very, very um, connected. We tend to think of that as a sort of um, very modern idea, you know, that, that the pre-war world, that it, politically there were a lot of connections, um, socially, culturally, these poets and people who were educated were able to read one another's work. It wasn't just, a, there wasn't just a sort of national um, canon, although there was a national canon that people could draw on that, that were, was brought up. I mean, people were also, of course, reading Tennyson, very popular in the early years of the war and indeed throughout the war. Um, someone like uh, Robert Byron Brooke was often sort of compared to him in the press, also to Philip Sidney. So you get this kind of sense that we're trying to sort of situate the war in terms of the sort of cultural heritage of the nation and the cultural heritage in terms of, of, of what people are reading and what people have read throughout their lives. I've also thought this was a wonderful statistic to remind people of and also to use as potentially an excuse for why I can't sort of cover all of the, the poets of the early years. So much poetry is being published. And just to say also, all of these, the, a lot of the images I'm using are on, on the archive, so you can kind of hyperlink if you're, if you're interested, if the, the, if the presentations are circulating, kind of read a bit more about the actual images. But you have a sense that in the early years of the war, it's actually a very sort of flat structure. You know, you don't necessarily know who's going to, in 1945 or 1968 or today, who's going to be the poet that is most talked about, is most discussed. There's so much being published. And of course, about sort of a, a quarter of those who are publishing um, poems during the war and about the war are women as well. And of course, they don't usually make it into the, the sort of short list of, of the First World War canon. Um, oh, and I, I thought it was interesting also to, to just kind of think, in, and this is also setting up to talk more about poems themselves, is this idea of how do we remember the war? And of course, Dan Tubman, in his really interesting book, The Great War Myth and Memories, points out we don't remember the war. We weren't there. We don't have an actual experience to draw on. We may have experiences of other wars to draw on, but we're always kind of trying to, to construct something. And that's something that poetry is very helpful with and very interesting, but there is a danger of, as, as I think was mentioned before, it being sort of used as information. And also, when I talk to the students, of forgetting that it's all selective, that it's that it's something that, um, for various reasons, has had to be sort of organised in particular ways. I won't sort of linger too long on Pierre Nora, but it was uh, this was a, a sort of um, concept, this idea of realms of memory, a project that was um, that was seven volumes, so quite a long time, has come to sort of dominate um, discussion of, of the memory of the war in France. There is even a journal now, History and Memory, that's um, that's edited it out of the Indiana University Press. 
Um, and there's this idea, this idea of the kind of realms of memory become invested with emotive and symbolic significance, as Nancy Wood has said. And it's almost impossible to get away from that. And you can almost say that war poetry and, and, and the war poets are sort of operating in, in, in this way as well. And I promise not to have too many French quotes. I have a, a French grandmother, so I always have to throw one in. I kind of love to do it. But I thought this was a good, uh, a good quite sort of translatable one, even if you're not, you're not a sort of French linguist. Um, this idea of, of, of having to constantly, I think the point is, reconstruct this huge um, event, this sort of great tragedy, but also to do so in ways that take into account what was private and what was public, as I already mentioned, and what was essentially guarded or sort of um, protected as, as sort of a personal memory, and what was discussed very, very openly, and what was kind of um, almost the official line. And it's not necessarily to set that up as a dichotomy, because I think that's the problem sometimes, is it's too much sort of, there's an official version and there's an unofficial version where they sort of interlock and interact um, throughout the early years of the war and then throughout the war period itself as well. So when I'm thinking about the early war poets and indeed the poetry of the First World War in general, I tend to ask myself, what do we as modern readers miss or potentially assume about what we're about to read, about what we've just read? Um, what was compelling to people at the time, which may not necessarily be easily understood um, for us, but um, is something that I think it's important to work hard to at least try to, to get to. And in what context did early war poets and poetry operate? And I have this great anecdote that a friend of mine who actually works as a military historian and works on the armies in Mesopotamia, and he was talking to me about um, a, 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 so, a, a soldier who was, um, I guess we would probably call him quite blokey. He was reading his sort of war journals. He never, ever mentions books. He never mentions literature. And then all of a sudden his horse dies. And he spends weeks writing this very, very sentimental, emotional poetry about the death of his horse. And it's interesting to think of that juxtaposed against the much more sort of serious somber, um, really sort of morally challenging poetry that's produced by a lot of the people that we're going to be talking about in the next few, few days, that that's also sort of present, that that's being printed, that people are reading that. They're reading that in the newspapers. They're reading very sentimental poetry. They're reading very angry poetry, but angry in a different sort of way, particularly early in the, in, in the war. Um, so I wanted to start just by talking about Rupert Brooke, because I can't not talk about Rupert Brooke, having worked on him for a long time. Um, it's interesting what Mark was talking about, this idea of Brooke being a war poet, because, of course, he, po he published a lot of poetry before, not loads, but a lot of poetry before the First World War, and he already had a, a relatively established reputation, and he certainly had an interesting network of, of context in the literary world. But, of course, what he is known for is the war sonnets, uh, the 1914 and other poems, which were originally published in New Numbers in 1914. He's also sort of known for this kind of very sort of compressed biography, being at Rugby, being at King's in Cambridge, where they have a wonderful archive. Um, he did serve a little bit. Uh, he saw a little bit of action at Antwerp just early in the war, but not very much. This was with the Royal Naval Division. Um, he, of course, famously dies of septicemia, although interestingly, when I talk to people nowadays, they often say, but didn't he serve on the Western Front? And I say, no, no. <laughs> he was never on the Western Front. He read, you know, he was he was sort of corresponding with uh, with with old school friends and such who were who were serving on the Western Front. But he himself was only just at Antwerp for that very very brief time. Um, he wasn't sort of in the Somme in 1916 or anything like that. Um, but of course, dying on the way to Gallipoli create at this particular moment in the, in, in the history of the war creates um, 
some interesting opportunities, if that's the way to, to put it. Of course, it's, it's more complicated than that. He's buried on the, the island of Skiros, and again, talking about Byron, there's that sort of Greek connection. And I've just, I'm sorry that I haven't sort of put all the full poets, poems up for Brooke, but I'm, I'm sure you probably have them in, in anthologies and such. I just chose a few lines. For me, it was interesting when I was, when I was studying, when I was going through um, the archives at King's have these amazing sort of clip files of, of articles where Brooke is mentioned. It's almost kind of like an early Google search, except for people were actually going through and, and collecting all of this. Um, and the poems that were most often printed from the, from, from the sonnet sequence are The Soldier, of course. This is the one that is quoted very, very, still to this day, very, very often. Um, and The Dead. And these are two sort of, I think, quite striking lines. If I should die, I think only this of me. And, of course, the, the red kind of highlight is, is mine, not, not Brooks, or uh, it's not italicized or anything like that. But there's this sense that as a poet soldier who dies early in the war, that very, very short sort of abbreviated history that I just, of, of his life that I just alluded to becomes sort of all that we know about Brooke and all that the sort of wider reading public know about Brooke. But it's almost sold as though that's all they need to know about Brooke, that he's this volunteer, you know, he has this kind of, all these wonderful links to sort of a, an ideal of England, Cambridge and, and rugby, the great sort of public school. Um, and it's interesting to think, and in, in, in I wrote down the phrase, but I'm probably going to forget it now, this poetry of self-dedication, think only this of me. And it's interesting to read some of the, his contemporaries at the time, people like Ralph Inger, who's um, the dean at St. Paul's, when he's talking about this poem, he, he's actually mildly critical of it in the sense that he's sort of saying that it's, it's not only about the individual, it's about this kind of collective sacrifice. Um, but of course, this poem becomes incredibly famous and very, very popular, not just in England, not in Britain, not just in Europe, but around the world, in the United States as well. Um, and then the dead dying has made us rarer gifts and gold. The sense of, of the individual sort of giving themselves, and again, this great strain <coughs> in all of the poetry that is written about volunteerism and the ethos of the volunteer. You can think of other people like Herbert Asquith and the, the actual poem titled The Volunteer. And... It's interesting that although Brooke doesn't have an extensive experience of the First World War, the sense that he's in uniform and that he dies in uniform, that's almost all that is important to the readers. You don't, it, when you're reading through the, 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 all, of the sort of all that's written about Brooke at the time, there's never a sense that he doesn't have some sort of claim to authenticity. You know, he's, he was there, he experienced it. He may not have experienced an extended war, but he was of the mindset of a sort of true poet-soldier, and that's something that is, is never really, really questioned, even sort of later in the war, but definitely not in 1915. And that led me to think about this idea of, of sort of war, the individual, and their relationship to the state. And of course, because I'm a cultural historian, that's something that's always sort of at the, at the front of, of, of the discourse. So in this quote from, a, which is a really interesting book by Christopher Coker about this idea of, of waging war without warriors, so he says, indeed, back at the beginning of the 20th century, the world, for instance, Conrad understood so well, war was as much a means of realizing one's humanity as it was a means of achieving the objects of the state. So there's this interesting sort of interaction between the individual and what it means to sort of serve um, your country and, and to put on the uniform and potentially die um, sort of in the, in, in, in the cause. And of course, Ernst Jünger, and apologies, I think that's missing an umlaut, um, of course, our cause sanctifies battle, but how much more does battle itself sanctify the cause? 
Jünger, of course, is a very interesting writer who serves in, in both both um, the First and the Second World War and has a very sort of long experience of conflict in the 20th century. So there's all of this is kind of in the mix in the early years of the war, and people are really thinking about it, what it, what it means. I've been rereading, I don't know how many of you, I'm sure you have, have read the Radetzky March, Joseph Ross, wonderful sort of book about um, the, Austro, the sort of disintegration of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the, one of the soldiers in this book, they're sort of sitting out on the borderland between Russia and Serbia, and he says, you know, we're waiting for the war. We're sort of waiting for this to happen. We know that it, something has got to happen. There's this tension. Something has to break. And, of course, a lot of this is romanticized. It's not something that people understand, that there's this great break between the sort of pre-war world and, the, and then all of a sudden everyone goes off to battle and everything changes. But there is this sense of expectation. And I think a lot of the poetry that's published in the early years of war is kind of trying to understand, um, or sort of trying to take this to the next step, to the next level. I thought I would quote from the obituary or just kind of put this up here for you because it is very, very important um, in terms of thinking of this idea of the kind of myth of the poet-soldier very much associated with Rupert Brooke. And it is amazing how many newspaper articles, if you're reading uh, newspaper articles about other poets who are published early in the war and then throughout the war, they so often refer back to Rupert Brooke as the poet-soldier. So there's this kind of constant comparison that's going on. And it's almost as though he creates a sort of uh, almost a genre, although of course it's not a new genre, it's, it's kind of within this context of, of, of a sort of a, a collective inheritance. I've just highlighted some of the interesting phrases. Um, Churchill's not the only person, of course, who worked on this obituary, which is actually quite amazing, the number of people who worked on this obituary in the Times, of course, just sort of on the eve of Gallipoli landings. Um, the sense that Rupert Brooke has a voice, that he's doing justice to the nobility of our youth and arms, that's what his sort of job as a poet-soldier is, and this is what he's achieved. Uh, the, the phrase, thoughts of self-surrender, again, this point about the fact that you're sort of volunteering yourself for something that you know is quite dangerous, that you know that you're potentially going to be killed in. Um, carrying on, again, he's mentioning the poet-soldier, the phrase poet-soldier. The simple force of genius, the sorrow of youth about to die, the fact that he expected to die, he was willing to die, and yet he goes to this death in sort of a perfect serenity. And of course, all of this is something of an assumption. <laughs> you know, we, we don't know exactly what Rupert Brooke was thinking when he you know, con contracted septicemia. He, of course, didn't die in battle. It's not completely clear how this sort of um, links into the experiences of other war poets or other poet soldiers or just sort of soldiers in the front lines. But there's this assumption that there's this kind of peacefulness in death, and there's a sort of um, resolution that's achieved by sort of serving and, and then dying as a volunteer. Of course, mentioning the war sonnets as, as, as Churchill and Marsh kind of identify them. And an acknowledgement of the fact that this is the hardest, the cruelest, and the least rewarding of all wars that men have fought. Um, it's interesting, you always have to remember this is something that kind of my, one of my supervisors was a military historian here, and of course, he's always reminding me of what's actually happening on the battlefields <laughs> in 1914 and 1915. And to remember that it, certainly in, in Britain and in, in England, there is this kind of collective shock, and certainly an individual shock for many people who lose, lose loved ones. The incredibly bloody sort of opening months of the First World War when you have actual mobi mobility of armies. And Hugh Strong, who, who my supervisor, always reminds me, you know, when you think of the, the sort of iconic trench um, you know, it, of course, for, to us, it's a symbol of just the horribleness and the sort of degradation of war, but it's also a defensive 
structure and it saved lives, whereas in the early days when men were sort of moving and horses moving, everyone out in open fields, you still have the same um, military technology, you have the artillery, and it's causing unbelievable damage and unbelievably high sort of casualty rates, particularly amongst the sort of uh, lieutenants, the, the sort of early o the officer class. Um, it's, it's a real sort of period of sort of, but the whole war is a tragedy, but it's, it, it must have been an incredible, um, incredibly sad time to be alive, an incredible sort of shock. Um, moving on, and I think this is another sort of point that always has to be mentioned when you're talking about this ideal of the poet-soldier that's kind of being built up early in the war, this idea of classic symmetry of mind and body. I, it never hurts that Rupert Brooke was a very, very good-looking young man, and people constantly sort of refer, referring to that and talking about how beautiful he was. Um, and that not only that, there's a sense that he has this, sort of, it was, we were talking about a sort of classical education. Um, he's sort of, you know, someone who, for Churchill at least, can be a kind of representative, um, is, is fraught, as I think we, we know that kind of word is, in any sort of discussion of, of, of poet soldiers or of, of poets in general. Again, England's noblest sons, the most precious is that which is most freely proffered again. These men are volunteers. And of course, there's a political backstory to Churchill sort of penning this, um, this obituary as much as he's sort of recognising Rupert Brooke. I do think he's, he's sort of using it as a kind of um, way to explain. And to, I don't want to say that he's using it as a way. I mean, there are, he's been sort of heavily criticised in the press at this time and is kind of under attack. It's, it's not that sort of glib or that sort of um, conscious, I think. But he is... Well, he probably is quite conscious, but he's, he is, you know, sort of using this as a kind of way to explain the sacrifices and a way to contextualise um, such high casualty rates and such. And then I just thought I'd give you a few examples of, of how Brooke, this kind of myth and how he's talked about, because the, the, the press really does um, an enormous amount of work in sort of building up. And even if people couldn't afford volumes of Brooke's poetry or they you know, didn't necessarily go out and seek those books, although many of uh, the, the publications themselves, although many did, they could still read sort of glosses or sort of um, bits of his poetry in the newspaper. It was incredibly sort of accessible, reprinted all the time. And then it would always be contextualised with these kinds of headlines, a real loss to the future of English literature, the radiant, perfectly poised story of Rupert Brooke, and this idea of dying a hero's death and a martyr's death, and this is how he's achieved fame. So again, you think back to those lines, think only this of me. This is, this is kind of my... Um, this is all that you need to remember. And this is how you achieve immortality as a poet-soldier in the First World War. Um, and from someone, actually, Professor Gilbert Murray, who is here at, at Oxford as a classicist, you know, he kind of is taking a bit of a step back and talking about the kind of phenomenon of how this myth builds up. But he does point out that it's, it's almost not predestined, but there is a sense that because of his connections, between, because of the type of poetry he wrote, because of, um, you know, how he looks, of course, he's typified the ideal um, radiance of youth and poetry. So I also, also think about the sort of tensions of that generations, and I'm going to talk about that in, in a second as well. But again, focusing on the youth of, of the ideal sort of poet-soldier, whether or not, again, that's, um, that's actually representative, and this idea that he's a meteor flag of, uh, of England. And then just the sheer sort of popularity, because I often think we forget to, not forget, but we don't always talk about um, what was written and then what was actually read and what was purchased during the war. Incredibly sort of successful poet, 1914 other poems. And as I say, this, you know, the poems were reprinted, so that doesn't take into account you know, where they were sort of published outside of the sort of traditional um, 
uh, you know, means of publication and sort of books and such. And this idea of kind of almost free promotion that you get um, Rupert Brooke's last poems, Rupert Brooke's promise talking about the volume, Rupert Brooke's last, this is the kind of last utterance of England's poet soldier and you need to kind of buy this, you need to have it, you need to possess it. Um, the most sincere and accomplished poet of his generation. This is from the Irish Times. I thought it was interesting to show that it's not just sort of in England that this is, this is discussed. Our poet from Aberdeen Free Press, the utterance of the youth of our generation. And then from, from, from Australia, these five noble sonnets. And they're, you know, these are just kind of um, sections of, of longer reviews that are very, very interesting. And then to talk about, you know, of course I'm using all this to, to sort of, sort of conceptualise what the other poets as well all these sort of influential friends and readers. Um, so as I mentioned, Gilbert Murray, Lytham Strachey, someone in a political, with political connections, Violet Asquith, who becomes Violet Bonham Carter, um, Dean Inge at um, St. Paul's. This is Emile Verheeren, who's a very famous Belgian poet and kind of writes about Rupert Brooke. John Macefield, who's actually sent out um, to sort of talk by people like Charles Masterman to talk about sort of um, you know, not specifically about Brooks' poetry, about sort of English literature in relation to the war in the United States, who you kind of see working on neutral opinion as well. Virginia Woolf, who is, of course, a good friend of, of Brooks, but, but, you know, now becomes one of the great sort of modernists. And Henry James as well, who um, uh, is, you know, sort of a, quite a, well, public fan of, of Brooks. And this is then Edward Marsh, seated with Edward Marsh, who is a great friend of Brooks and very, very much responsible for... Um, looking after his publications and his sort of uh, reputation after his death. Seeing he's the private secretary to Winston Churchill. I think that, that picture, that photograph is actually from the Boer War. But. So it's just to kind of highlight the point that there, there are all these sort of interlocking networks that are also sort of not controlling, but sort of looking after what's going out into the public domain, um, what's being published in the early years of the war. And this is a slightly potentially odd quote, but just I thought it was quite interesting to think about this idea of institutions and modernism as a wonderful book for Lawrence Raymond. Um, because a few of the people I just sort of showed up there are sort of responsible for bringing along this idea of modernism and, and, and the real sort of innovations in poetry in the, in the 20th century. But he just highlights the fact that there is this kind of this, there are all these sort of interesting ideas about the relationship between modernism and popular culture, the fate of aesthetic autonomy, authorial self-construction, something that's interesting to think about with Brooke and then with um, his own self-construction and then how that's picked up by others in advancing modernity and the troublesome place of literary elites in public culture. So, of course, we tend to think of some of the more, um, for lack of a better word, popular poetry as being heavily criticised by the modernists, being sort of held up as a kind of poised <coughs> counterpoint to what's published um, later in the 20th century. And the kind of influence that has on the, 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 the canon is, is something that is quite interesting to kind of keep in mind as, as we look at some of the other, um, other people who are publishing in the early years of the war. So I thought, sort of just to remember, of course, as I just said, there is this interesting point about generations and the fact that there's this kind of established generation who, of course, are not going out to fight on the battlefields, but are sort of looking after almost a public consciousness, or public um, uh, sort of talking about the war, trying to sort of shape, trying to understand what's happening. And this is from the Poet Laureate from Robert Bridges, who's talking about this idea of we look and see at these kind of moments of absolute misery. We look to the seers and poets of mankind, whose sayings are the oracles and prophecies of loveliness and loving kindness which is interesting to think about in war when you're talking about violence, death, aggression. You know, here these poets are sort of held up as being um, 
talking about something slightly different and moving the, the, dis the discourse or the discuss discussion away from that emphasis on the actual degradations of the battlefield. And I thought it's interesting this phrase that he uses, distractions from grief, because I think a lot of the poetry and a lot of the very affirmative Patrick po poetry, patriotic poetry that's published particularly early in the years, you can kind of see that as almost a distraction, something that helps people to sort of contextualize their own particular experience of the loss of loved ones, um, and in a way provides this sense of sort of comfort or distraction, it, even if it's only momentary, and even if later on people are, you know, almost immediately people then start to question that, that sort of affirmation. Um, someone who speaks very much to this, of course, is, is Lawrence Binion, who is actually an assistant keeper at the British Museum. It's interesting that when you think about the kind of the role of um, uh, sort of propaganda and, and, and how that the, the, the sort of ministries are sort of interceding every, every now and then in this big, in, in what's kind of read and what's um, where the poetry, poetry is read and where it goes, for instance, as I mentioned, to the United States, to the neutral nations. Um, so it's very, very, of course, recognisable. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. So again, I think very much speaking to this sense of, of those who are kind of left to, to deal with the loss um, and, and kind of looking at a particular generation almost with awe and trying to sort of make sure that they properly sort of capture the moment and memorialise the individuals who've been, who've been lost. And then a very, very different um, reaction and a very, very interesting and quite famous one, I think, from W.B. Yeats. I think it better than in times like these, a poet's mouth be silent, for in truth we have no gift to set a statesman right. He has had enough of meddling who can please a young girl in the indolence of her youth or an old man upon a winter's night. And of course, famously titled, I'm being asked for a war poem, in the sense that in some ways there's not much to be said about the loss. There's anything would be a sort of... Um, reaction. And interestingly, this poem is included in Edith Wharton's book of the homeless, as is some of Brooke's work. Um, this is a, a, a sort of charitable publication that's, that's organized by Wharton and is sold in the United States to raise money for refugees in France and for victims of the war in France. So again, there's this whole kind of, not necessarily sort of um, in terms of profit, but a sort of, that is all going on at the same time as well. And so you do have a, a sense that there are different reactions already to the war. It's not just a clear-cut picture. People are not sort of writing one way in 1914, 1915, and then in 1916, 1917, 18, and then after the war everything changes or anything like that. It is, it is mixed even amongst the very sort of established generation. Um, and I always like to think of the fact that the poet soldiers themselves, and this is something that I really, really, really became more aware of when I was working on the archive, that poet soldiers and the people who are sort of writing and publishing poetry in the early war years are already themselves, re of course, the readers as well. And this happens in the international sphere as well, which is why I put a picture of Alan Zeger up. He's reading the work of people like Brooke, of Charles Sorley. Charles Sorley is reading Brooke Sassu, and they're all reading one another's work. Robert Graves is reading Brooke's work and is writing to Edward Marsh about this. So there is already this discussion about, and it's almost as though people are sort of um, experimenting, these writers, future writers and very famous poet soldiers of war are sort of experimenting and trying to wade through all that's being published and all that's being put out and also looking at the reactions that people are getting to their work. Um, so it's just, uh, uh, William St. Clair, he, he talks about this, he has a chapter in the Reading Nation Romantic Period, this idea of reading constituencies, and notice that's plural, that they're not fixed, that they're multiple, that they move, that they shift. And I think a really important point, and I know Paul Fussell's already been mentioned, <laughs> that the fact that 
he, he sort of speaks of it as though the soldiers in 1914 and indeed the wider reading public are sort of vigorously literary and they're constantly sort of making reference to particular works and sort of, it's almost, some of the letters are really amusing, there's almost a sort of competitive element to it as well, that people are constantly sort of invoking someone else and trying to use them to sort of convey an idea. Um, and all of this is also coinciding with this idea, um, these kind of what he calls the liberal forces, the emphasis on classical and education in English literature and the trend uh, to encouraging popular education and self-improvement. So I, I just put this picture, this, to, to be clear, obviously, this soldier is actually writing. I think he's not reading. Reading. I, I would have preferred a, a photograph of a, a soldier reading. But this kind of anon- anonymous sort of reading public that is also made up of soldiers. For in, in the press, they love to sort of say, oh, what are the, the soldiers at the front discussing? Which writers are they actually reading? So there's this sense of kind of, okay, well, who is authentic? Who is doing the best job? We have these different audiences for that work. And this idea of war poetry, the sort of conversations that are built up, um, and th- these are all in the archive. Um, it's really interesting to sort of read these letters, and then the diaries are available as well. And these letters, Vera Britton and, and, and Roland Lighton, who also both write poetry, are discussing how they sort of can get the volume, R- Rupert Brooks' 1914 and other poems, to one another. So they're sort of saying, I'm sending you this, I'm sending you that. So it's almost as though they're, u- and then they kind of discuss it a bit. It's almost as though they're using these poems to sort of explain their own experience of the war and to try and, and it's almost as a tool. And I don't want to make it too much of this kind of instrumental, but the sense that this is a way of, of discussing what's happening or something that they can kind of use to either critique or, um, you know, to, to really engage, but also, in a, but in a very sort of um, both a private and a public way. And it's interesting when, when Roland's um, Lighten is killed, Vera Breton says, somehow I think that Rupert Brooke must have been rather like Roland. This idea that he's that Brooke is this kind of public figure and then they're sort of using, uh, she's using him to, to kind of try and help explain what's just happened. And just one more kind of theme early in these years, as I mentioned, right, there is this, this huge kind of shock, the violence of the war, unprecedented. Um, and you have someone like Brooke and one of the great points I think about the myth is you know this idea of the golden haired as I mentioned he's very good looking a golden haired blue eyed Adonis and this kind of imagined recreation of the of the death of, and burial of Brooke which is if you think about the sort of the, the sort of George and the pre-war years this is kind of almost the, the sort of um, sort of adolescent ideal of what's going to happen when you sort of die in battle that you have this kind of honor you know, sort of procession, and, and it's very, and, and, and Brooke actually does have this, it's not, it's not untrue that this kind of does happen, but, the, you know, to then, and for people like Churchill, to then kind of think about what actually happens to a lot of other people in the war, the actual death on the battlefield, and again, to quote Paul, quote Paul Fussell, this like, irony of situation, and the actual sort of life and death reality of war, death from illness, death from um, you know, from injury, from artillery, etc. And the fact that people are, are really trying to sort of deal with this at the time. They're trying to, you can understand why they might prefer to sort of move towards something that is much more sort of glamorous, um, sort of clean ideal of death um, to some of the, the, the sort of realities, even if they have to face those realities eventually. And again, Tim Kendall, there's this point, and it's very early developing the sense that everyone's kind of bearing witness. We know that. Um, you know, during the early years of the war, there's almost an immediate push to kind of historicize. The Times, very, very early on, starts p- 
publishing these volumes, the history of the war, sort of in August 1914, as everything is happening, because everyone believes that this is one of the sort of seminal events of, of, you know, of their lives. And these poets are then um, sort of brought in to actually sort of testify and to try and make sense and to try and elevate. And I think that's often the expectation, what's actually happening. And there's real pressure for that um, in 1914, 1915. And there's a very, very interesting introduction to Henri Barbus's Under, Under Fire um, by Jay Winter, the American historian, who talks about this as well, the sort of uh, idea of the kind of witness, the poet is witness, or the writer, I should say, is, is what is witness. So I thought I would just very, very quickly, I don't want to spend too much time on these points because I know there are many, many other people in, in the room who are, and they're, gonna, they're much more sort of knowledgeable, but just to kind of give a taste um, of how this kind of um, period is fixed in people's minds. There's, of course, that first moment also on receiving news of the war, that idea of when people realise that the war that had been anticipated is actually happening. is a really, really interesting moment. It's something that people keep returning to in 1914 and 1915, so this is Isaac Rosenberg. I won't read all of these poems in, in full because I think I want to make sure that we have a little bit of time for discussion. But um, from, I think, one of the most interesting poets of the war, this reaction um, to this idea of sort of give back the universe its pristine bloom, the fact that this is not something that he sort of views as a kind of elevation, but it is something that is kind of destabilising and almost marring, um, marring the sort of collective existence um, this is from a Scottish poem, Mary Simon. I'm afraid I couldn't find the photograph. Or I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, of course, interesting to see this written in, in the kind of dialect. Um, again, this is just a, a section. One of her, her poems, A Whiff of Home, A Whiff of Home, is, is included in a Christmas book sent out to the troops in 1916. So you have these kind of semi-official poets as well. Um, but I think really speaking to this idea of sort of place and loneliness and the idea of a kind of vacancy even early in the war, as, as people start to leave, as villages are sort of empty. And that's something that I haven't ever really gotten to grips with, I think is a really, um, really interesting thing to, to talk about. Um, of course, we have this kind of iconic, idealised vision of the sort of pastoral landscape, and that's something that the poets as well sort of are discussing in, uh, during the, the, the First World War. But this idea of the, the kind of um, hollowing out and what happens to the sort of rural villages and such in England versus the kind of great metropolises. We have a lot of cultural histories about sort of the big cities at war, but not so many about what happens out in the countryside and the relationship between those, those different spheres. Um, I did include this. I know we said, it, we said British war poetry, but I thought I could get it in because actually Edward Algar <laughs> um, does set this poem by Emile Camerta to... Um, um, to, to sort of to music, he and that's interesting always to think about the the sort of interplay between music and poetry, the sort of singer, the tradition of uh, uh, that, that goes along with that. This is on the seventh of December of nineteen fourteen, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, and I think Samuel Hines in, in a really wonderful book about the war, War Imagined, which I think is a great title, is points out that this is a poem not about the conflict but about defeat, which is something you know, of course, the the, the sort of Belgian experience of the war is, is iconic and is very, very, very sort of um, important to, to the sort of public discourse about the war in 1914 and 1915. But this is a soldier who's essentially dealing with the defeat of his homeland and trying to think, okay, well, what, what do we, wh where do we move on from here? And interesting that, that Elgar chooses that poem to, to sort of um, 
um, to, to set uh, his piece to in, in, in 1914. Um, this is an interesting poem, and I thought I might just pause here because, you know, again, I, I really, people always say to me when I'm talking about Brooke, is Brooke a representative poet? And I think, oh no, you know, it's not, it, it, representative is, is a difficult word. But um, a lot of the poetry that you read, um, the, there's a wonderful anthology, Vivian Noakes' Voices of Silence, which is sort of publishing a lot of the poetry that doesn't sort of go into, into the, the sort of classic anthologies. Um, this very much talking about the sense that 1914-1915 is the period when people are talking about sort of the atrocities of the German army. And this is a huge sort of cause célèbre. And of course, this poem is specifically directed at the Kaiser, um, but this poetry is as published and as read and um, you know, discussed as, as some of the other examples that I've alluded to already. Um, and you can see it's interesting, some of the, uh, of the more sort of gruesome details that we, the, that we tend to sort of um, talk about in, in, in the later war poetry and kind of fix on, you know, it was absolutely um, considered appropriate to linger on in this poem because it's essentially showing the sort of damage caused um, by, by, by the Kaiser specifically in the German army um, in the sense that there are these sort of Belgian, well these sort of victims of the war that, that need to be recognised um, and that are, are absolutely sort of appropriate to be writing poetry about I did say I would talk a little bit about Julian Renfall only just to, to mention this as another sort of um, another example of the poetry that's being published there and I know we're talking about I don't really have that much to say about the sort of classical education but this sense of the kind of uh, the natural environments and the way the, the soldier is kind of interacting and nature and the kind of pastoral almost as a comfort. Again, sort of, it's understandable that this appeals to readers in 1914-1915 just as it does um, to readers throughout the war. But it, it, again, to go back to that, is, is this a war poem? You know, it's interesting to think of our expectations of what is a war poem and, and what's actually being sort of alluded to and discussed uh, the, in, in this poem. And I did have one from Wilfred Owen. It's always a bit mortifying to quote someone who's in the room. But um, it's, it's a kind of early uh, draft of, 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 of Brooks' poem, one of, of, sorry, of one of Owen's poems. And it's something that I think is very interesting to consider. A lot of the poems that, the poets that we're discussing in the next few days wrote the kind of poetry that Brooke wrote in 1914 themselves at different points throughout their career, if you want to make that kind of direct comparison. And I'm, I'm not saying it's exactly the same sort of poetry, but it's almost as though they're sort of trying out different, um, different voices. They're trying out different sort of means of addressing the war experience and of addressing what they've seen. Um, it's, Brooke, of course, does not sort of move on to um, have those kind of comparisons, does not have sort of build up a... Uh, a, a repository of experience uh, of the war in the way that others do. Um, this is a, a poem, again, from the, the anthology Voices of Silence by Augusta Hancock, um, very much talking again about this experience of feeling left behind. And I think it's interesting, the second stanza, where she said, there is not to feel the passion of overcoming, the pulsing beat of ears that strive, or of ears, I'm sorry, that strive for right, there is not to live while fears, like wild birds homing, come through the shadows of each sleepless night. So this sense that there is this kind of excitement early in the war. And the women are sort of engaged in this. Many women are engaged and sort of are feeling quite sort of, you know, caught up in it. But then the sense of um, sort of emptiness. Uh, David Stevenson, I've always been struck by his introduction um, to one of his books. He talks about, speaking, he speaks to his, speaking to his grandmother about 
the experience of the First World War, and she just says it was horrible, you know, it was awful. That's all I can say. It was sort of grinding every day, you didn't know, grinding uncertainty. Um, you know, you may not know exactly what was happening, and probably you didn't want to know exactly what was happening in France, in Mesopotamia, all around the world, on all of the different fronts, but you knew that your loved ones were constantly in danger, and you were constantly trying to figure out how you just sort of almost get yourself through that and figure out what was your place in this massive, massive event that was the First World War. And then, of course, one of the, I think, sort of most interesting poets of, of the early war and very much discussed by, um, uh, by sort of Grave, Sassoon, um, London and such. I won't read this out. I know many of you will have read this. But such a, a kind of um, sensitivity to this idea of, of death in the sense that... Um, you know, almost kind of harkening back to, to Yeats and this idea of there's, there's not much to be said, although we're trying to say a lot about, uh, about the war and about what it means very, very early on. And I thought I would just close with, uh, again, I had to say something about the French, but because I know we're focusing on British First World War poetry, but of course, um, in terms of cultural history of the war, the, the move is very much towards the comparative, comparative histories and looking at the sort of various combatant nations and really, really trying to understand and kind of look for um, continuities. Um, there's an excellent anthology, Tim Cross, The Lost Voices of World War I, which is a great sort of introduction and um, has the sort of poetry as well, the biographies of a number of individuals, August Stram, George Trackle, Alan Seeger again, uh, Renato Serra. Um, this is a sort of quote from the, the kind of famous French poet, Guillaume Apollinaire, Allez d'Italie. Um, and it's interesting, I thought, that it's dedicated to his friend and the futurist poet, uh, Andrango Sofici. And you have this sense that everyone's kind of reading one another. And yes, of course, we have this kind of canon of, of war poets, of war poetry. But there's the sense of where does it sit? Where, you know, in, in 1914, 1915, Apollinaire is kind of trying to guess. You know, this is... He's sort of saying, I, 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 in 1915, he sort of actually says, I expect the war to go on until about 1930. You know, it's never going to end, basically. And the sense that in 1914, 1915, we know when the war ends, but people at the time didn't know where the war ends. They were kind of at sea and trying to, you can understand all this sort of grasping to try and figure out, um, uh, figure out what's happening. So just to kind of come back to this, it's sort of final point in the sense of, of war po early war poets and war culture, the very interesting questions that they raise about the sort of public and private spheres, the individual and the state, as I mentioned. And always just, I, I tend to think from the perspective of readers as well as kind of the poets. And in this sense, one of my supervisors very early on when I was working on, on my thesis said, you have to remember, it's always st st stuck with me, there's no such thing as sort of emotional consistency in war. People are up and down, just as you know, everyone who, who lives their lives, different things happen, different, thing, different moments. You might be experiencing sort of a period where you're very interested in sentimental poetry and patriotic poetry. You may be disgusted by the war. You may be very angry. You may be sort of in a period of particular grief. You may be one looking for something that expresses or affirms a particular pride in the sacrifice of friends or family. Or you may be looking for distraction. And maybe distraction, again, is, is the wrong word because I think that maybe makes light of some of the work that's produced early in the war. It's, it's, it's searching for affirmation of, of, of what you're experiencing and looking for poetry to sort of explain this experience, both to yourself, the experience of the war, whatever that experience of the war may be, 
and then to explain it to other people, and then to contextualize it within the sort of collective um, narrative about the First World War. So. Yeah, right. Please.